Welcome back to Talks with Together We Care Fount Hills. I know we took a small break from releasing episodes, but we are back. For those of you who don't know me, I am Rory Wilson, and I'm one of the co-founders of TWC. I've lived in Fountain Hills for more than four years, graduated from high school here, and I'm currently a junior in college. When I'm not studying or doing TWC stuff, I work part-time, and I am also a commissioner on the town's Community Services Advisory Commission. Before I get started, I wanted to reiterate some concepts and definitions from a couple episodes ago when I talked about defunding the police. Defunding the police means to reallocate funds allotted to local and state law enforcement agencies and redirect a small portion of those funds to various social institutions and programs, such as public education, healthcare, affordable housing, drug intervention programs, and behavioral health care. Behavioral health care refers to mental health and a person's overall well-being. So anyone who experiences mental illness or has a substance abuse disorder and other individuals that are indirectly impacted by these issues, as well as the communities that these groups reside in. Professionals in this field consist mostly of social workers, as they're the ones who interact with families, individuals, and other community members to solve, diagnose, and treat these various issues. Police reform involves reforming police agencies in terms of staffing, implementation of agency-wide usage of body cameras, agency policies regarding use of force and de-escalation, and the overall procedures relating to service calls and investigations. Crisis intervention training, also known as CIT, certifies some officers in 40-hour long training relating to mental health crises, in which case, for example, those officers might respond to potential suicide calls. Now, a few episodes ago, I discussed defunding the police, in which I talked about the overall concept and mentioned a few ways that some cities are actually reforming police agencies. Today, I want to discuss a little more in detail about some cities that have already started this process of police reform in their communities. In addition to the importance of having actual social workers and EMTs responding to crisis calls instead of police. We don't have a badge and a gun. We have snacks and water. That's what Walter Adams, a social worker at Albuquerque's new Community Safety Department said in an interview. The Albuquerque Community Safety Department is the first of its kind and is located in New Mexico. It was just recently launched in September of this year and according to Mayor Tim Killer, this new department can respond to 3,000 calls each month, ranging from mental health to substance abuse to homelessness. This also comes just two years after a controversial incident with the local sheriff's office, which resulted in 28-year-old Elisha Lucero being shot to death by deputies, who, at the time of the incident, her family had called 911 in the fear that she'd harm herself. None of the deputies involved were wearing body cameras, as it wasn't part of the sheriff's office protocols back then. But the death of Elisha Lucero sparked movement in this neighborhood in Albuquerque, in which New Mexico's ACLU pushed for stricter agency policies, such as requiring usage of body cameras, with the help of Alicia's family donating $200,000 to the ACLU chapter, which was won in a lawsuit with the sheriff's office. Her family continued to advocate for police reform measures and social worker-based response teams to serve community members experiencing mental health crises. Now, if you research more into the ACSD, you'll find that there's much controversy around the funding between the mayor and the city council. 
This is a new department and other major cities are observing Albuquerque very closely to watch the successes and the pitfalls of it. But you need to keep this in mind. The ACSD, just as any social worker-based response team, isn't established just to benefit community members. It's to benefit law enforcement and fire departments as well. In my opinion, paramedics responding to crisis calls are much better than police, but even then they have very little expertise in mental health, and many of them do have their own speculations towards people who experience substance abuse and the unsheltered community. These biases and prejudices that officials have towards community members harm people, and they affect how officials interact with individuals on service calls. And there's also the fact that because these first responders don't have much knowledge in any of these areas, that when they do respond to calls, there's very little that they can do to help people, which results in them wasting resources because they're not out responding to other calls about fires or car crashes or robberies, you know, etc. By establishing these teams of social workers, it relieves law enforcement agencies and fire departments of the extra responsibility to respond to those who experience homelessness, poverty, substance abuse, or mental health crises. And if you remember towards the end of my first talk about defunding the police, a study that happened no more than a few years ago found that senior law enforcement officials and their employees are considerably stressed because of the increased nonviolent crises that they have to respond to and the fact that they have very little resources to help those community members move forward. It might seem like the Albuquerque Community Safety Department and other social worker-based programs have little impacts on communities, but they do help. And this is a significant step forward for the city, and I encourage you all to watch closely. If you are subscribed to our newsletter or listen to our Defunding the Police talk, this next bit might be a little familiar, as I will be discussing Denver's STAR program, which stands for Support Team Assisted Response and consists of social workers and EMTs. What happens is when someone has a mental health crisis and calls 911, that call is redirected to STAR so that the caller can have a more appropriate response, rather than what happens in most cities where police respond and the risk of misinterpreting a person's words or behavior can lead to police violence against whoever originally needed help. But since STAR is still fairly new, they are also not staffed to full capacity and have a long way to go, so they can only respond to calls within a six-mile radius. STAR was launched in 2020 in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests across the country. However, it had been in the making for a couple of years because, as we all surely know by now, change does not happen overnight. EMTs and social workers that staff STAR respond to calls related to homelessness, poverty, substance abuse, and mental health crises. The city of Denver also recently established a STAR Community Advisory Committee, composed of 15 volunteer residents across the city, and they help to advise the integration of this program in the community, as well as spread awareness. Let's talk about spreading awareness of STAR. This is important with any aspect of government or social program, because not only does it help people who are knowledgeable about STAR, assist in busting misconceptions about social worker-based response teams that the public may have in regards to law enforcement. But it also helps get the word out to those individuals who may be at risk for calling 911 in the future and can potentially benefit from STAR. So how did STAR first begin? 
Originally, it was a program launched and overseen by the Department of Public Safety, but the city has been managing it under Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment for several months now. By allowing DDPHE to take over management and oversee STARS budgets and operations, the city has now been working on expanding the program by hiring more staff so that the mobile teams can travel more than a six-square-mile limit to respond to calls. According to the Denverite, as of August of this year, they only have two vans and three teams with a day shift team and a night shift team. And I know that doesn't seem like much, but you gotta start somewhere, right? Also, as of August... STAR had responded to over 1,600 incidents since the program was launched, most of which related to trespassing and welfare checks. And none of these calls required them to call Denver police for backup or make any arrests. STAR has also been constantly funded by three main sources, the city, which provides $1.4 million, a foundation called Caring for Denver, which also provides $1.4 million, and $1 million provided through the summer's contingency. For the whole year of 2021, the city of Denver allotted $229 million of the city's budget to the Denver Police Department, and the budget for 2022 would allow for Denver Police to receive $245.9 million. Now, I'm not saying this is something that's happening right now or even something that's being discussed, but if the city of Denver were to take just $1 million of those funds going to the Denver Police Department in 2022 and gave it to Star, you might think, wow, that's a lot of money. And it is. It is also less than 0.01% of the police department's total budget and is also an example of what could happen if that city wanted to defund them and invest in other aspects of the community. Because defunding the police does not automatically translate to decreasing officer salaries or taking away technology that officers use during investigations. Defunding the police means allocating a small portion of police agency funds and directing them to other institutions in a community that have the ability to more appropriately assist community members and divert them from their potential involvement in violent crimes or incidents. The last city I'm going to talk about is credited to having the oldest non-police-based response program. In 1989, in Eugene, Oregon, the city launched CAHOOTS, the Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets program, operated by Eugene's White Bird Clinic. Just like Albuquerque's CSD and Denver Star, CAHOOTS responds to 911 calls relating to homelessness, substance abuse, mental health crises, and much more. The annual budget of CAHOOTS, according to a Forbes article published a few weeks ago, is around $2 million and has even saved the city from spending $14 million in ambulance rides and $8.5 million in public safety. In 2019, CAHOOTS responded to over 17,700 calls for service and called police backup 311 times, which counts for less than 0.02% of all calls for that year. And in 2017, CAHOOTS responded to roughly 17% of 911 calls directed to the Eugene Police Department save the police department approximately $12 million for that year. However, since CAHOOTS consists of clinicians, there has been much criticism over the years, in addition to how 80% of residents in Eugene identify as white. So this program isn't necessarily a perfect guide for other communities that are more racially and ethnically diverse and are over-policed. 
but overall what happens on a call is CAHOOTS will send out a two-person team, usually a nurse or EMT and an official trained in CIT, so it's not quite social worker based. With that said, CIT officials sent on these calls are not armed and are not associated with a law enforcement agency. CAHOOTS isn't perfect for every city and town in existence. Just like Albuquerque's CSD and Denver Star won't fit perfectly in every other community. Each community is different demographically and it's important for each town and city to design a program that meets the needs of all of their community members as best as possible. Taking into account people's races and ethnicities, the LGBTQIA community, disabled individuals, people with mental illness, people who experience substance addiction, and the unsheltered community. But CAHOOTS is the longest standing program in the U.S. that has proved its benefits for community members and first responder agencies. Overall, it just goes to show that a little can go a really, really long way. The ever so common excuse that people use when exempting police officers from their actions that have resulted in unwarranted harm towards another person is that they're not robots, they're humans. That officers will make mistakes because they're overworked and mentally exhausted. And although I have yet to see too many people advocate for first responders' access to mental health care, people bring it up just as soon as the public's attention is focused on an officer who killed or brutally assaulted someone. People will spin the concept that police officers are held to such a high standard, given so many different responsibilities, and as soon as one of them commits a criminal act, they continue to support them no matter what. But here's the thing, those people are right to a certain extent. Police officers are held to a high standard, just like doctors, nurses, firefighters, anyone who has the ability to save or take a life. They are given numerous responsibilities that do impact their overall ability to function. Like, let's be honest here for a minute. Being exposed to that much trauma, responding within minutes of brutal attacks, dealing with the aftermath of devastating car crashes, finding children and infants that have died after drowning in the pool, discovering people dead from gunshot wounds, and so on. Experiencing that amount of trauma is not normal. And then on top of all of these cases where they arrive on scene after an incident occurs, they still have the risk of being shot at, stabbed, assaulted by other people like murderers, robbers, rapists. We all recognize that they are given numerous responsibilities while still being held to a high standard of not killing or harming other persons no matter if they committed a crime or not. And they should be held to high standards. I mean, come on. No one wants their loved one to be treated by a doctor who's taken an oath to save lives without hesitation and has studied for years. But then in the middle of surgery, that doctor grabs a 15 blade instead of an 11 blade. The difference between the two is the size and the type of incision they make. And if that patient died on the table because... The surgeon used the wrong instrument and created a much larger incision than they were supposed to, even though that doctor is supposedly certified and knowledgeable in the surgical tools used. You still wouldn't want them operating on anyone else. And then other questions would start to arise. Has this doctor done this before? Is this the first time they mixed up surgical instruments resulting in a patient's death or causing harm? 
will they do it again? Is there an underlying reason for this? Like, were they hungover? Was this doctor simply careless and wasn't thinking? Or was this doctor biased towards the patient who might be a person of color or be gay or identify as non-binary? In the case that a doctor uses a different tool that results in a death, no one, not patients, the medical board, or the place of employment, would want that person continuing to work there and operate on other patients. The same thing goes for police, or it should. Okay, we don't blame all other doctors that were not contributing to a surgery where malpractice resulted in a death that shouldn't have occurred because they are not the ones who completed that act of incompetence. But if they had evidence and knew that a particular doctor had killed a patient after a so-called mix-up, you would still expect them to report them and hold their co-worker accountable. In the case of Brianna Taylor, for instance, since we're all pretty familiar with what happened, detectives Brett Hankison, Miles Cosgrove, and Joshua Janes did not face any charges in relation to murdering Brianna, but rather Hankison faced repercussions unrelated to her death. They entered her home based on a no-knock warrant, which have since been banned in Louisville, and the three detectives fired multiple rounds in her direction, with the fatal shot being by Miles Cosgrove. What activists, advocates, and most of all, Brianna's boyfriend, family, and friends want is for Brett Hankison, Miles Cosgrove, and Joshua Janes to be held accountable by the court system, especially for their colleagues at the Louisville Metro Police Department and other law enforcement agencies to hold them accountable too. Justice needs to be served for all those who have been killed and become victims of police brutality. That translates to law enforcement agencies being transparent with communities and firing and ensuring criminal charges against those officers responsible for inflicting unwarranted harm on individuals. Going back to the silent push for mental health care access for first responders only when they do something wrong is something that needs to be talked about constantly. Mental health for everyone is the utmost importance and should be one of the first priorities of law enforcement agencies, government, and communities. Because when officers are not honest about their own challenges that affect their mental health, that influences how they act on duty and interact with community members. Their many numbers of responsibilities given to them is baffling. They should not be given so many things to be responsible for and expected to handle them all incredibly well, which is the exact reason why we need police reform. This is why we need to defund the police because resources are being wasted when officers respond to calls where they have absolutely little to no experience or knowledge of them. Social workers and EMTs should be responding to nonviolent mental health calls together. They should be responding to calls of threats of suicide, crisis calls for unsheltered individuals, and calls for drug intervention that are nonviolent because social workers actually have college degrees relating to behavioral health and officers at the most will have 40 hours of training in crisis intervention. We need to prioritize mental health for community members and for first responders. By redirecting funds and these different responsibilities to social worker-based programs, Law enforcement agencies can direct more of their time and effort to cases in which they play a more crucial part like solving murders, assaults, locating thefts, etc. By reforming law enforcement agencies, we would be relieving officials physically 
but most importantly, mentally. The moment that we start advocating for accessible and quality mental health care for all, for community members and first responders alike, is the moment that we all as a society recognize how many faults exist in the criminal justice system and work together to improve first responder agencies so that all callers and persons experiencing a crisis can feel safe and place their trust in the officials assisting them. Thank you all for taking your time to listen to this episode today. I know sometimes what we talk about on here can be overwhelming, but it gives us an alternate platform from our website, social media, and newsletter to discuss different subjects more in depth. It can be really hard to stress the importance of these discussions like defunding the police, the death penalty, or cultural appropriation in just a few paragraphs in our newsletter or a few sentences on Instagram, especially when we're also trying to end our conversation on a positive note. For those of you who are not aware, Together We Care also recently participated in the Fallon Hills Cares event on October 30th, and Carrie Harper and I served on the planning committee, alongside Mary Jenny Dickey, town council members, and senior town staff officials. Carrie also served on the panel for race relations alongside three other individuals in the event. If you weren't able to attend and want to know more, we have a page set up on our website with multiple resources, including the link to the town's YouTube so that you can watch the event online. Just go to our website, twcfountainhills.weebly.com, go to the menu in the upper right-hand corner, click on Projects, and continue to our Fountain Hills Cares page. Thanks again for all of your continued support and willingness to learn with us and open up your mind to different perspectives. If you have any questions or want to share your own opinions on this topic, feel free to contact us via email or on our social media. I'm Rory Wilson, representing Together We Care Fountain Hills. Have a wonderful rest of your day.